This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Over the last few months, I've gotten the chance to talk to some of my listeners, and I loved hearing what varied industries you're in, engineering, marketing, medicine, the list goes on. But there was one common thread. Many of you have made a career change over the years, sometimes a major career shift. And I truly love to see women embracing what they want and having the courage to make a pivot because so many of us find more joy and more success when we do. Some 53% of us who quit our jobs in 2021 decided to change our occupations, according to an analysis from Pew Research. And I think if the last few years have taught us anything, it's that we must be able to find joy in our day-to-day and to be passionate about what we do for a living. Our guest today is perhaps one of the best people to talk about what it means to make a total career 180 and embrace your true passion in the process. Debbie Brooks had what anyone would call an extremely successful career, She spent nearly a decade at Goldman Sachs, rising through the ranks to become vice president in the fixed income and asset management divisions. Then in her late thirties, she decided to take what she knew about building a business and apply that knowledge to the capital starved nonprofit space. So she went back to school, got a master's degree in social work, and three years later, she co-founded the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Under her leadership, the organization is about to hit the incredible milestone of nearly $2 billion raised to fund the research that will hopefully, one day very soon, find a cure for Parkinson's disease. Debbie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm so excited to hang out with you. Me too. Always love hanging out with you. So Debbie, I know I gave our listeners just a few highlights, but I would love to have them hear more about you're going along Goldman Sachs in the 90s, killing it. And then what happened to make you make this giant turn? Well, this was never anything I anticipated. To be fair, I never imagined working at Goldman Sachs either. It doesn't always show up in my bio, or it's not apparent at least, that I'm really a first-generation person in my family to graduate from college. I didn't know what business school was. And then I found myself at Tuck and on to Goldman Sachs. These were all things that were never really 
part of a any kind of plan. And so spending the time at Goldman, which, by the way, I loved working there. You did? Oh, yeah. In the 90s, especially. It was really early days for investment banks bringing MBAs into sales and trading, for instance, as those instruments were getting a lot more complicated. I thought, wow, they're bringing MBAs. And then I realized, wow, they're bringing women in. I mean, there were maybe two out of 110 new freshly minted MBAs going into Goldman's sales and trading program when I was arriving in, I actually started in 86. It was just an extraordinary opportunity. And ultimately, I loved pretty much every minute of it, loved my clients, loved my colleagues. But there was this thing, maybe a little bit of me that was an imposter, like, how in the world am I here? And am I, what am I doing? But there was a moment that started a shift for me. One of my longest, dearest friends invited me to her beach house in Nantucket. And I went out and hung out for a couple of days and watched her life, like gardening and going to the beach and cooking great meals and, you know, just living quieter, but very nice life. And I thought, you know, I am well deep into what I'm doing, but I'm kind of starting to miss out on all the other things in life. And that did start me on a journey. And part of what I realized was that I was successful in traditional terms, far beyond what I ever thought I needed or wanted, but that I did value. I wanted to get into having a life that was broader than that. And so I started thinking, what would I do? How would I do it? And over a course of a year or so, I decided, I, I think I need to do something that I can be a little bit more passionate about 24-7 not in the traditional work your ass off for 24 seven hours, but more grounding in a broader life. And I, that's when I decided, I think I'm ready to try something else. And I do remember when I went in to kind of resign at Goldman, they're like, where are you going? What is Morgan Stanley? Well, exactly, Morgan yeah, Stanley. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, well, it's really not that. And it was funny because I ended up, the traditional walk you out the door the minute you say you're out of there, I ended up staying for several months because I was going off to graduate school and I already laid my tracks to do that, to get a master's degree in social work. And I knew I wanted to go to the nonprofit sector. And I kid you not, for the next several months while I was still there transitioning out, I had so many colleagues who'd come in my office, shut the door and confess their fantasies, you know, like, right. yes, <laughs> yeah, that there's something else. And I really want to be the squash coach at Dartmouth, whatever it is. And, and I just realized I'm breaking out of something that's wonderful, but it's what was really shifting for me at that time in my life. And so how did the people in, as you're getting your master's, how did they look at this Goldman Sachs alien who came in? Did they embrace you? Yeah, it's so funny. I don't really remember how they saw me, but I remember how I started to see myself, which is... I was in a relatively small program that happened to be at Northwestern. And so I'd lived in Chicago for a few years and stuff before when I worked at Goldman. And here I was back and I was making all these new friends. And what I found was I was a peer to them when it came to the passion of making a difference in the world. And I really admired everybody's dedication and skill set. And I thought, I'm so proud that I'm with them. But I did start to realize, and maybe others in my cohort did too, I would sit around in our long conversations and I would be solving different problems than they were. The ones we were all trying to solve, which is to really unlock systemic problems in society. I was thinking, if they could package this and raise more money for it, this is underserved, or we could, if we reorganize the clinic, we might be able to get more under low-income families free 
therapy, all these things. And I realized I have this business way of thinking and experience that is going to be unique among these great people who want to go help change the world. And that really got me thinking, oh, geez, what am I going to do? And how should I harness my experiences for something that can have the greatest impact? Right. If you can be a multiplier, bringing that business sense, there is absolutely a place for it to amplify by multiples. And I didn't know what that would look like, but I started to realize maybe I shouldn't come out of this master's degree and hang up a shingle to be a family therapist, which is what the training was, mostly because there wasn't then, and there's a little bit more now, a way to get professional master's level training on how to be a run a nonprofit and stuff, but that didn't exist at the time. And and so that was an element of figuring out being an alien in the space, I realized actually was maybe a unique skill or a rare skill that might make more sense for me to try to leverage that and think I'm going to be the next great family therapist. Well, lucky for the foundation. So let's just talk about how did you get to the foundation? I mean, you were been there Right since the beginning at 2000, there were almost no therapies at that time for Parkinson's. The thing that I found most interesting that I think says so much about you is if one were to ask whose job is it to cure Parkinson's, you would say it's our job, the Michael J. Fox Foundation. It is. And not because we are going to sit and tinker in a laboratory and wake up one day and say, Eureka, we have it. It's really that it's a big system, which by the way, parallels right back to family therapy. Like so much of what we're trying to do in the world is connect unrelated things and make them smarter and better. And, and the Fox Foundation just wakes up every day with this mission that we're here until Parkinson's isn't. And what can we do? What should we do? And at any point in time, it was based on what was the state of the field and also how much money could we bring to it? And I saw it in the early days that with a little bit of money, we could make an impact. And what I really have seen over the last couple of decades is as we've scaled, how extraordinary the impact could be. And we will be at the heart and we already are at the heart of the advances and the acceleration of impact and some of the things that are already over the goal line and in the hands of doctors and patients today by virtue of how we've brought a new dimension of capital to the problems that need to be solved and a complementary but different way of thinking about how to solve the problems. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a different kind of focus. So just back up a little bit. How did you get connected with Michael? How did it come to be that he was where he was in his life and ready to go public? And how'd you connect? What was that first meeting like? Yeah, so it was crazy, to be honest. So I know now that he had hired a search firm that was helping him find a, someone to build his organization or lead his organization. To be fair, there wasn't really much of one in place. The search firm had been showing him people in the nonprofit sector with leadership experience in the health segments. But he was still struggling, trying to figure out, he just wasn't finding a match, not that he could articulate it well. And he was on a journey to figure out, he was finding people that he didn't think were right, but he was really just defining, what do I need? And actually the catalyst that led to him meeting me comes directly from one of the board members at the Fox Foundation today, Curtis Shanker. And Kurt would see Michael and, you know, pick up and drop off of their kids at school and they didn't really know each other. 
But he would always go up to Mike and say, hey, you know, I know you're working on this. Let me know if I can help. I might be able to help. And one day Michael says, well, I, I can't find anybody to start this thing, to get it going. I'm getting help, but it's just not, doesn't feel right. And Curtis, as he is apt to do, goes right to the heart of things and says, yeah, I bet your search firm has you looking for someone who runs nonprofits. Don't focus on nonprofits. Find a builder and I can help you with that. And so Curtis just ushered Michael to learn from the experience of the Robin Hood Foundation. And next thing you know, they were putting feelers out. And those feelers went to Goldman and other Wall Street firms looking for someone who would leave their career to come run a nonprofit. Of course, nobody really does that then or now, but I'd already done it. And because I lingered for months and people really knew what I was up to, even though I'd been gone for a couple of years, oh, one of those calls came my way. And so you'd already done that hard work of changing your life course that would be necessary. Yeah. And I'd done a little work in the nonprofit sector and I was learning things that were shaping how I thought I could make the greatest difference and what I really wanted to be involved in. And so there was this opportunistic moment. I was dropping my then fiance, now husband off or picking him up from a tennis match with a former Goldman partner, our friend. And he says, hey, I got this call today about this job, Michael Fox, he's looking for somebody and he's pitching me on it because he knows my background, what I'm up to. And I'm like, that sounds pretty interesting. He goes, you should do this. You'd be great at this. And I said, well, if it's so great, why don't you do it? He goes, oh God, I don't want to work that hard. I'm retired. <laughs> and my husband looks at me, he goes, you'd be perfect for this. You should do this. So I throw my hat in the ring the next day and the headhunter calls me and says, any chance you could come to New York? I'd love you to meet Michael like Thursday. And I'm like, sure, I can do that. So I meet Mike at this interview group. And it was fascinating for me because I realized, wow, there was no there there, by the way. This predated Google. You couldn't go figure out what is the Fox Foundation. There was no information. So it was really cold. And we connected around his vision and how I thought about impact in the nonprofit sector, but it was platitudes and values. It, it wasn't terribly concrete, but there was something, there was real kismet in it. So at the end of the interview, I leave and I'm thinking, I, I really want this job. Who am I to think I could have any impact? But I'd love a chance. Like, this seems really exciting. I only had to be wise enough to realize Michael Fox, that'll scale. Like so many nonprofits never scale. So I could put my hard work in a place where it, could, it has a shot. And there was a magical moment, especially actually it was after the interview. I'd walk down the hall. I'm like finally at ease from having it behind me. And he walks up and stands next to me at the elevator and nudges me. He goes, hey, do you mind if we go down in the elevator together? I'm like, okay, this isn't over. And we go downstairs and we're standing on, you know, in front of the old Bear Stearns building on Park Avenue. And we keep talking for another 45 minutes. And it was just that personal connection and a like-mindedness. He knew I didn't know anything about Parkinson's and he felt, oh, I, I know something about Parkinson's. He goes, and I, but I know nothing about how to build anything. And I winked as if I might, but he said, I'm calling you tonight. If I call you, will you take this job? And I said, if you call me, I'm taking this job. So I heard about it out of the blue on Sunday. And by the following Monday, I was in the Spin City production offices in New York City. And it was the first day of work. Wow. I mean, you're, you're so intricately intertwined with the entire history of the Fox Foundation. It's hard to think that that wasn't the plan going in. And the thing about Michael, he's so, I mean, as you said, scalable, the just relatable and adored and optimistic. And he's sort of the perfect person to build something around. 
sad as it is that this is how it happened, but what an extraordinary coming together of so many things. All right, so now you're starting this foundation from square zero and a half, and he's gone public with his diagnosis, and so there's a fair amount of momentum. How do you turn that into a real business whose job is to raise money to cure Parkinson's? How did you do that? When I started the job, in my mind said, oh, we'll be funding research. And Michael had already put some capital into the foundation, so we weren't broke. And I knew something about raising money. My whole career at Goldman was sales. I understand how to put a two-sided trade together. And so I think mission and philanthropists, close enough. And Michael, he already, his goodwill and the admiration for him already had engendered so many people who said, let me know if I can help. And he knows a lot of people with capacity. So I got to start the organization by connecting with people who on day one could write $50,000 checks or $100,000 checks, not just $50 checks. And so the interesting thing was there wasn't any there there, but there was the promise. And people were excited. And it's actually pretty rare to see strategic philanthropy in the medical science area. It's much stronger today, and we're not the only ones who do it, but it's still pretty rare. And people who had been funders in medical research and might even have a personal connection to Parkinson's, they welcomed the arrival of Michael in terms of visibility and being able to bring voice to a community and a lot of unmet needs. He'd already been testifying before Congress around doubling NIH budget and stem cell research freedom type of things. It was clear what Michael would bring. And and I think actually, oddly enough, my background of business and Goldman Sachs brought some credibility for window dressing purposes mostly, but maybe something about how we would think about addressing this problem. And that meant I could sit down with thoughtful people who really wanted to partner in how to build this. And I didn't really have a strong opinion, nor had I technically built anything before, but I'm a really good problem solver. That part I already kind of knew, and today I really appreciate that that's what I was bringing to it. And it didn't take me long to rescope this in my mind that Okay, raising money to fund research, yes. And at what scale, who knows? But we'll really be able to raise the most money when we really know how we're going to use that. And that set me on a journey that I think really shaped what would enable the Fox Foundation to partner with so many people in the community, many of whom are donors, actually tens of thousands of people are donors, and get it off the ground. And the shift was, we're not just funding research. I mean, I I didn't have this language on day one, but what I realized in the early couple of years is we are gonna be able to harness philanthropy capital in a way that we can speed Parkinson's drug development. And that framing really set us on a course for what to build, how to build it, and to chart our course for impact. So how does it work that it speeds the development of drugs? Well, when you think about the whole ecosystem and enterprise around getting better medical treatments, it's vast. And it is one of the things that makes us somewhat unique, but also impactful is that we can define where we sit. But if you think about aha moment, 
that's really basic science funded by the U.S. government, principally in academic labs, not just in the U.S., funded by NIH, but all over the world, funded by a variety of entities, sometimes government, sometimes non-governmental nonprofits. But the end, the getting to the drugstore shelf is really pharma. And in between what it takes to understand biology and then see if we have interventions, most of our interventions are in the form of small molecule drugs, but increasingly biologics and things, to figure out if those things are really going to be impactful in a way that impacts human health is a long journey. And it crosses a lot of different stakeholders and all those stakeholders have very different risk reward profiles. They have different funders. They have different horizons that they're looking for, for seeing value. And what I really started to appreciate is there's a pretty big gulf between where academic basic research stops and when something shows up in a pharma portfolio. And given the state of Parkinson's treatments in the day, there wasn't really much going on. There was no pipeline of interventions. And so that's where we focused. And to go into that part of the field, you have to have a high risk profile. And the government doesn't have it. And pharma doesn't have it for that early stage area. But philanthropy capital that's focused in speeding drug development can absorb that appetite. In fact, I thought that it was our obligation and, you know, I remember getting so many inputs from early funding partners. Many of them were also other business entrepreneurs, and it really helped shape who we could be and how our capital can behave. And particularly this part of my thinking was influenced heavily by Andy Grove, who is one of the co-founders of Intel. And he was a quiet, anonymous donor. He had Parkinson's disease, but he wasn't public with it. And he found his way to us pretty early. And he was helping me think about this, and it was just extraordinary. And as we would get smarter about how to use dollars or when we could see things happening, thinking about our risk profile and how to prioritize our capital, no matter how much we had, became a really a defining set of principles for us. And it turns out that adding that one more bit of capital, and of course, a couple million bucks may not move the Dow much, but now we'll be close to spending... $300 million on research this year. And so this is hefty. And it really is complementary to those other massive stakeholders. We're still the smallest. Actually, we're kind of the same size as the government for Parkinson's. So just finding our way in that bigger ecosystem, which isn't apparent on day one, was really part of how we, I think, set ourselves up to have the greatest impact. I remember hearing Andy Grove on conference calls like, I don't want to hear self-congratulation. What are we doing right now? How are we moving this forward? Debbie, I want to come back to that. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. 
If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Debbie Brooks. So you had a very significant piece of news coming out of the foundation recently. Tell us about that and how that's going to drive this forward. Yeah, so we've been on this path to de-risk Parkinson's drug development. And there are two big components to that. One is to put capital around ideas that are interventions. How can we address the disease, kind of intervene and treat it? And then a second parallel path is we need tools to prove to ourselves that we're doing that. And so the first one, we've spent probably 60, two-thirds of our dollars in really ushering new treatments from early stage concept to the point where pharma picks them up and, and hopefully can take them over the goal line. But we've been well aware all along that any advancing therapy was going to be challenged because we really just had no objective ways to measure the disease. And without that, you really don't have a way to convince yourself or convince regulators that your intervention is successful. So we've made a really significant investment over the years to find one of these objective ways to measure the biology of the disease in a living person. We can verify it at autopsy, just not very useful. Not useful for care, not useful for drug development. And we've been investing for well over a decade on looking for one of these objective biomarkers. And we just recently announced that we found one. And it has been a big game changer. It's very quickly resorting the appetite for pharma around novel ideas. What we found already, which is an ability to detect the actual pathology of PD in a spinal fluid sample of someone alive, so just to clarify for people, if you take this test, you will know whether you are highly likely to develop Parkinson's. It'll tell us today that you have the pathology at work. Even if no symptoms are evident. That's correct. So it, it confirms a diagnosis in life. And in fact, we can see it present in people years before they are exhibiting any symptoms. So this is a big game changer. And within months, we've mapped out another billion dollars worth of follow-up to refine this tool. We've been working on others, you know, to kind of build a new scaffolding on how to think about biological 
definitions of the disease instead of just things that are around symptoms, which are highly variable and imprecise. And I think we see ourselves on a path now where we can Actually, we're working on a paper with FDA right now that will get published in the fall that kind of starts to put forth this biological framing, which gives guidance to pharma. But I think we're also on a path for ways to do public health screening. And we'll be able to, I don't think it's far down the road, a matter of years for us to really add things like screening for brain diseases like PD, Alzheimer's, and other related dementias in our 50s. We're not there yet, but that's where we're headed because these tools are that valuable and they really now will unleash a lot more. And we've seen this in Alzheimer's just in the last handful of years as well. And so the brain is the final frontier. People, and we among them, have been chipping away. And it's not just about the idea of how to treat and do we have a pill to do something, but getting these objective markers transforms how we can put these things on a path to drug approval. Mm -hmm. Right. If you have a population that you know is going to develop Parkinson's and you can see how they respond to different drugs, that's so much more valuable than a population you don't know if they were ever going to have it or not. Right. And also we've seen in um, Alzheimer's that after trials failed, when they didn't have similar tools, that they had tried to test drugs on certain biology for people that in retrospect never had that biology to get begin with. So these were trials that were destined to fail. And by the way, the phase three trial in neurodegeneration is like a billion dollar bet. So these are big advances to be able to clarify and refine how we think about designing trials and demonstrating efficacy in these brain diseases. It also brings up an interesting philosophical question, which is, would you want to know if you were going to develop Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? I personally would. I'm not sure I would have said that before I found myself deep into the world of science, but people have been wrestling with this in other ways, like understanding genetic risk factors. But these things are related. By the way, not knowing doesn't keep it from happening. Right, right, right. But also, I meet people every day who say, oh, yeah, I want to know. You know, they want to understand what their future looks like. They want to think about, well, yeah, you don't have a magic potion for me, but I read that if I exercise, that's good for brain health, and that might be good to delay things like symptoms around Parkinson's. Those things are true. So some people are willing to like embrace the knowledge and do as much as they can, including participation in research. But there is a real chicken and egg in this. If we don't find people who are willing to say yes, then we can't crack the code and demonstrate that these are the things that we can change. And people who do participate in research, there's good data that says they end up with better care, they're in top-notch settings, and also even if they're in the placebo arm of a intervention, they generally have first access post-approval. You really do get earlier access. There's risk in participation in interventional studies, obviously, but I think the draw is to be part of the solution you're looking for. And I've participated in trials in Parkinson's myself as a control, not drug trials, but in the learning trials, actually the big longitudinal study where the data on this new biomarker was observed and validated. And so I've actually been poked and prodded now for over 10 years in this longitudinal study. And I also appreciate that these are tools that are a little bit further ahead in Alzheimer's and related dementias. And now this is a big public health conversation because we have treatments 
that have just been announced over the last several months, several for Alzheimer's. And so I think we'll start to see more people screening because there's something to do and broadly people can take actions. But I would probably find myself, you know, first adapters, early actors, because I also see the promise of science and I may join them, get be part of the solution you're looking for kind of person myself. So I do spend a lot of time with Parkinson's patients and the average age of onset of symptoms. It's important now not to talk about it as the disease onset. It's the symptom onset because we can see the disease earlier. But people who get diagnosed in their 60s, they're kind of annoyed. They were waiting for retirement. And now here's the unexpected present alongside that. You can make other choices in your life, the more knowledge you have. And also some of them are things that are behavioral choices that might change your outcomes or impact the outcomes. And others are just about who you are with and what you do with your time. So I think it's empowering, but it's not for everybody, as you said. So you've had a long history now at the foundation. What are you most proud of and what frustrates you the most? Fundamentally, it's hard not to be proud when I see something like this significant breakthrough that it is undeniable that we are playing a critical role in what will become a series of dominoes falling and transform how we treat Parkinson's disease and really redefine it I won't even be surprised if a decade from now, we don't even use the word Parkinson's disease. I think the whole world is changing and we aren't ancillary to this. We are fundamental. We're not the only ones. We stand on the shoulders of giants before us and we partner with giants today, but we have been part of the transformation. Yeah, you're in charge. You're in charge of curing Parkinson's. We could have done a lot of things and nothing good could have come of it. But it's kind of related to my frustration, to be honest, which is people have very low expectations of the nonprofit sector, and they have low expectations of a group like us. And I think part of the culture at the Fox Foundation is that we do whatever it takes. I really admire, by the way, the role that our board plays in empowering us to hire the right people, to go for it. We are a stunning collective of experts in this. And people often come to it new. Philanthropists come to it new the day they realize, oh, I care about this because it's someone in my family's been diagnosed. And pharma comes to it new because they've just bought a program and now they're in the, in the Parkinson's world. And they hear that, oh, that group might have something. They know of us and they know oh, maybe they're onto something. I'll, I'll go chat with them. But people come to us with really low expectations. And that's a frustration. But, you know, we have it just baked into our work that just do what we do and people will very quickly realize, wow, this is where I want to be. I want and need to be partnering with this group. And I think we've built extraordinary scientific credibility in kind of the realm where our dollars get deployed. And we're part of a community of patients and families who also know that we see them and that we are in there every day doing this with them in mind. And so I'm both proud and frustrated if we were not a nonprofit, we'd have been a unicorn, right? Everybody would be throwing themselves all over us. We've deployed a nearly $2 billion. So we raise capital, but we're still proving ourselves to large philanthropists. There just aren't that many places where people go who care about a mission where they can go and, and really put large capital to work. 
But drug development is a place where large capital is required. I guess one other thing that I'm proud of is how many people who want to go to the nonprofit sector and be part of something, and they find their way to our foundation where it's not just about the mission, but it's about the impact. And we now have spawned so many ways to think about things. And there are personally, since I've been here since the beginning, I've seen talented people come and learn at the Fox Foundation, go on to run other meaningful nonprofits. And to see that kind of approach to problem solving on a personal level, I'm really proud of all my former colleagues who are running other great things. I mean, that's just, that's just something you'd never really think about when you're scrappy and trying to just get off the ground. So that's another nice, a small point of pride that's more personal. It's a very good point of pride. There is a great story about you and your life with Jeff. <laughs> and it's a, such a good story. I know it, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell it as well as you. Tell us the story about where you were in your life and how you met Jeff and what happened. Yeah. So it's really something. I was like 39, almost 40, I think. And I had been married and divorced in my late 20s. And so I'd been single for a while. And, you know, I was still at Golden part of that time. And I was off on my own doing this master's degree. I had a full life. And I was approaching my 40th birthday, actually. And I realized I'd had a couple of guys who I dated who wanted to get married. And I was like, I'm not really sure they're the right person for me or me for them. But I felt this tug to have kids. And so I started this process to have a baby on my own. And I, unrelated, a friend of mine calls me and says, I have a guy that I'd really like you to meet. And I'm like, ah, like I'm, I'm done with all that. And I said, she goes, no, no, whatever. And I, she knew I was on this journey. I just had eight of my girlfriends come out to Nantucket for my birthday. And we, one of our assignments was to pick a sperm donor for me. So we were having fun. They sent catalogs, by the way. It was it was extraordinary. Anyway, I'm on this path. She calls, wants to set me up with this guy. And I'm like, eh. and I said, Mimi, remember, I'm also working on this thing. She goes, oh, fiddly D, like my grandmother would say. Fiddly D, it's none of his business, right? So she invites us, me over to meet Jeff, just the three of us at her house. And I meet him and I so, I don't know, there's something about this guy. He must think the same because he says, hey, do you want to do something tomorrow? I said, sure. So we were in Nantucket. He took me out scalloping. That was our first date. And at the end of the day, I was entertained by him and I was curious. But again, I didn't really have a mindset of dating. But I got all these scallops. I'm having a dinner party that night, turns out. And I say, hey, do you want to come to dinner? And he goes, sure. And so as I unfold and he says, I'll see you later. And I think, oh, shoot, this is going to be a little awkward because the dinner party I had planned was the bon voyage from my pals on the island as I go to Mass General for artificial insemination. So anyway, Jeff shows up and I realize I need to give him the context. Or, and this is like I've known the guy for 24 hours. So I tell him by the way, this is going to come up and I'm doing this thing. And he dropped his jaw all the way to the floor. And I just realized, oh God, well, that was one blind date. Nice guy. Never going to hear from him again. And the party was fantastic. And he held his own considering I dropped this on him the, like five minutes before everybody was arriving to dinner. Ultimately, I was on that path and we had some fits and starts, but you know, a couple months in, it was a little inconsistent, but he shows up at my doorstep and he said, I know I've not been very forthright and I haven't known what to do with this, but I gotta tell you, I think you're the person for me. And 
I'm like, how do you know? We haven't really put much into this. He goes, I don't know. I just know. So I need you to give me a chance. And I said, you know, I'm still working on this baby thing. And we started dating and we were married within eight months from that. And he kindly volunteered to help the old fashioned way. And turns out he's a little older than I am. I was already 40. We were not destined to have conception. And we ended up adopting our two daughters, Abby and Molly. It was crazy. It's a great story, though. Gives hope for a lot of women. It's a really good story. All right. So I think we're almost out of time, but I wanted to do the lightning round with you. But before we get to our lightning round, we're going to take a quick break. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with our lightning round. Okay, it's would you rather, basically. So the only challenge is that you can't think about these. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind. Yep. All right. Up first or last to bed? Up first. Money or power? Oof, power. Only get to wear black for the rest of your life or pink for the rest of your life? Black. Black. Okay, if, is there another color? You'd go with black would be your... For sure, choice. Maybe navy, but black. <laughs> okay. Play an instrument or speak any language? Speak any language. Try something completely outside the box or take the road traveled? Oh, I am an out-of-the-box girl. Clearly. Tropical vacation or European vacation? I think European vacation. Work from home or work from the office? Work from home. Bright red lipstick or chapstick? Oh, chapstick. <laughs> Oh, uh, winter or summer? Summer. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. What are you reading now? I'm reading Trust. Trust. I do it on Audible, so I listen to it, but it's a Pulitzer Prize winning story, and it appears to be the story from several different perspectives of the stock market crash in the late 20s. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, in the late 20s. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, I knew it sounded familiar. Be able to paint or be able to sing? I think paint. Run or bike? Run. By the way, I've never run a day in my life, but run. <laughs> okay. Would you rather laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Be moved. Now, this is the last question. What is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment you've ever made? And it can be a very broad definition of investment. For example, my best investment ever on the very first bonus I got, I bought a 
five CD player. You could play that for hours. And that was the most enjoyment I ever got out of buying anything with bonus money. So anything at all, what was your best investment ever? I can think of so many bests and very few poor investments. So I have to say in myself that just finding my way to business school is probably the most transformative investment in the trajectory of my life. But I also bought a, on a whim, like after two days of visiting Nantucket for the first time, I bought a piece of land and it sent me on a whole different course of life because I changed my life. Goldman enabled me to buy that and build a house, but it also changed the trajectory of realizing I wanted more from, from my life to be a little bit more purpose-driven. So those are that's two cheating answers. No, that's good. That's good. It's funny what in hindsight, what looks so obvious, but at the time going forward, it's not. And my worst investment, I'm really bad at looking back and, and thinking that something was terrible. There's so much to learn in the small decisions you make that none of them ever feel catastrophic to me. And so it's, I really, it's hard for me to pinpoint something so singular. Okay. <laughs> All right, Debbie, thank you so much. Your story is such an unusual one. It's such a great one though. And to be making such a difference in the world is really, I mean, it must be very fulfilling, but thank you so much for being here with us. Loved hanging out with you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Debbie Brooks for sharing how she's raised almost $2 billion to find a cure for Parkinson's disease. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week and I look forward to seeing you here with us again onward. <laughs>